Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. I'm an obstetrician, gynecologist, I'm a father, a grandfather, a husband, I'm a small business owner and a Catholic, I'm a lot of things. But right now on this episode, I'm your host on all things women's health. It doesn't matter if it's menopause to personal trainers to infertility to recurrent pregnancy loss. If it involves women and their health, it's on our agenda on all things women's health. Joining me today is a new old friend, Dr. Jeff Cly. We're going to learn a lot more about Dr. Cly and his unique approach to women's health, as well as his unique journey to finding his way to sitting here with me today. So get comfortable as we learn a lot more about Dr. Jeff Cly. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Welcome back to All Things Women's Health. Now joining me today is a, a new, as I said earlier, old friend, Dr. Jeff Cly. And Dr. Cly has been a part of the Fort Wayne medical community since way back in 2003. And as you'll hear, we have a pretty unique history together. He is one of the early adopters of robotic surgery in the Fort Wayne area, among a lot of other interesting things. Dr. Cly, welcome to All Things Women's Health. Thank you so much. I'm blessed to be here. Now, I didn't say in the intro that you're the newest member of our Fertility Midwifery Care Center family. Uh, and you're starting with us in September. We're looking forward to having you. I'm so excited. And, and it's by the grace of God that I'm able to come and join your amazing team. Oh, we're looking forward to you. having you. So let's start uh, for listeners who may not know you and go back and tell us the story of how you ended up sitting here next to me. Fantastic. I, I haven't told this story in a little while, so it's <laughs> exciting to tell it again. I, um, back when I was uh, a young freshman at University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm. And my, I had a lot of lawyers in my family. So just kind of growing up, I'd always envisioned, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer like my uncles are. And so I'm, I'm in uh, University of Dayton, and it's a Marianist Catholic college mm -hmm. in Dayton, Ohio. And I'm, I'm actually a little bit bored as I'm going through the classes. I like some of the law classes or pre-law classes, but some of them were kind of a little bit boring. <laughs> and, and I was like, hmm. But I had to take a general biology class. Every, the prerequisites, everybody has to take the yeah, same sure. stuff. And so during the, the biology class, we had to do a lab. And, and one morning in the biology lab, they showed a video called The Miracle of Life. And it was a video that kind of talks about in, in diagrams um, what is conception, sure. you know, from, a, from a, a, a very wholesome perspective. And then it ends with a, a, a delivery, an actual birth, a recording of a birth. So I'm watching this video and I'm, I'm just, something's going on inside of me that I was really <laughs> enjoying. I was like, wow, what is this? Because I'd never thought about medicine, yeah. never thought about or seen a delivery. This is back in 1988, 89, um, before the internet, right? Before phones. So there wasn't this access to information like there is now. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'm watching this delivery, this lady's pushing, and a baby pops out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. That's what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. Wow. And that moment was it, it just hit me like, that's it. That's what I'm, <laughs> I wanna do and that's what I'm supposed to do. 
I left the class. I called my mom, who, um, who God rest her soul, amazing woman, and I said, Mom, guess what? What? Um, on the regular old phone, right, you know? <laughs> I'm going to deliver babies the rest of my life. Oh. You're going to what? And I, and from there, I changed my major and um, became a pre-med student. Yeah. And then it was off to the races. And so I actually started with the thought of going to med school, knowing what I wanted to do, oh, or sure. thinking I did. Which is, I mean, I think it's common for students to think they know what they want to do when they start med school. It's not very common that they end up doing that. That's true. Yeah. I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician until I actually saw a baby as a patient and realized that wasn't my calling. Uh, <laughs> but you stuck with it, you know, your initial inclination. Right. right. So where'd you go to medical school? Uh, Wright State University yeah. in, in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. And when I got to my third year rotation, which is when I my first experience with OB, I just loved it. I fell in love with it. And I think also looking back, it's kind of set as God was setting up this plan for, for my life. Um, my parents got divorced when I was 12. Mm. And so I was the oldest of three. Mm. And, and so I was, I, I was a mama's boy. And I'm proud of that. Love my mom, right? Mm. And so I, I also had relationships with, with girls that were friends. I went to a, seminar, a, pre, uh, a high school seminary for two years. Mm. And so my I, I didn't know if I wanted to be a priest or mm -hmm. not, but I was open to it. But then I realized at the seminary school in Vienna, West Virginia, Vienna, Ohio, Parkersburg, West Virginia, I wanted to be married. And it felt uh -huh. that was my calling. And so I kind of had this, this Catholicism in me. So I was able to, I had a lot of friends who were women mm -hmm. in a plutonic, you know, natural way. So it was just normal to be able to talk to women and about, sure. you know, things that are personal. And, and feel normal. Mm -hmm. And then I love to tinker with stuff. So I love to take things apart in the garage and put them <laughs> back together. And um, with the surgeries we do, it's kind of like, it's, they're surgeries that have pre uh, normally good outcomes. They're, f they're not eight hour surgeries, they're, they're short and we have a goal. And so it's kind of like uh, doing work with my hands on the body. But let's be clear to listeners, we're in no way, um, correlating the surgery we do on women with tinkering with cars in the garage. Um, <laughs> but I get the analogy. And, uh, and I get it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you're a mechanical, fix it, one part yeah. works with the other part kind of thinker. Yeah. yeah. And, and your wit is why we became friends <laughs> 20 years ago. When was that? It's like, been a long time. It's because yeah. you have this wit, and I love your wit. So you get through medical school, and then you decide, okay, it's real. I'm going to be an OBGYN, mm -hmm. and then residency. Where did that happen? That happened at Wright State in Dayton, Ohio there. also. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And then residency goes along like it does. Four years for OBGYNs, a kind of an average residency length. Mm -hmm. And then what happened after that? Well, during the last year of residency and then two years after residency is when things started getting a little bit rough. Mm. Um, my, my dad was an alcoholic, mm. and so he was struggling with his alcoholism, mm. and so uh, during the last two years of residency, he was in and out of treatment centers, and I tried mm. to help him with that in Ohio. Um, and it, it, what eventually happened is he actually died, and he had a um, alcoholic cardiomyopathy uh -huh. and heart attack. And that was, I was a chief resident the, my senior year, and um, I was doing a C-section, and I got a call that, hey, you gotta step out and take a call it's mm -hmm. about your dad. and. And I've told this story a lot, so I'm, I'm I'm not as emotional now. But it was really rough, yeah. and that's when they said, "Hey, your your dad's passed away," mm. and that hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. 
and so that luckily I had the, the, the Catholicism and that faith that ha- had been inside of me for a long time. And my mom was a very spiritual Catholic, charismatic mm. Catholic, um, spoken t- spoken tongues, mm. just a beautiful woman. And so after that, my chief year, when I finished, I stayed in Dayton, Ohio, where I'd done all my training in, sure. in the undergrad. And so um, I joined this practice that was uh, seemed like the the perfect practice, and it was some of the attendings who had trained me, and so and kind of knew them. Sure, felt familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was able to get my feet wet. You know, didn't really have to you know leave into a new a new town or city. Right. Yeah, so that went well. And then, unfortunately, another tough time. My mom got sick, mm-hmm. and um, and um, turned out she actually had metastatic pancreatic cancer two two years later. Wow. And she, from the moment that she was diagnosed, uh, six months later, she died. Wow. Um, and I can still say one of the most spiritual journeys for her and all of us during that six mm-hmm. months. And it's interesting because I, I, I always wondered, you know, what's my role in life? And her doctor had blown her off and actually didn't take any of her symptoms uh-huh. seriously. And so she called me one day with some really unusual symptoms of headache that she shouldn't have had. And I said, you, you need an MRI. I'm just a gynecologist. Right. But. So she ended up getting an MRI, and, and they, that's how they found it. And if, I, if she wouldn't have called me, she might not have gotten the six months. Right. She, you know, it might have gone. So I feel like God had a hand in all mm-hmm. of that and to put me in the position to help because our family went through a tough time. But... But she kind of guided us during that six months. So pretty early in your life, you lost both parents. Yeah, I was 28 and yeah. 30, I think. So that's right there. About 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And then how did that transition to moving uh, to Fort Wayne, Indiana from, from Dayton, Ohio? So um, that's kind of an interesting story. I was unhappy. You know, at this point, both parents had died. Just, yeah. you know, life's kind of chaotic. I had young kids at the time. Sure. Um, and so I... I realized the group that I was in was very interested in the financial aspects of life. Oh. And I wasn't as uh, <laughs> I wasn't as interested in how much money I could make. It was more about helping women and you know doing what I can do to to make a difference in their life. And so I'd actually um, been an attending physician at Wright State University, and apparently I was nice to a young woman with the last name of uh, Bot, who, who was a student of mine. And her dad uh, was a former physician who has now passed away. Sure. And so when I put my resume out on the on the the job search thing, this guy calls me up and and he says, Jeffrey, <laughs> he's I hear you're a very good physician. You're very nice. I'm like, <laughs> and it turns out I had taught his daughter. Oh, nice. And I was really, I guess I was nice. I, I didn't think <laughs> I was nice, but I was. And so that's how I came here. Oh. He he said, I want you to come and check us out and. And it, it's more about being like a family than it is about the job. Because at the end of the day, yeah. when you have a rough day, you really you want you got to rely on your colleagues. Because it's sometimes there's some mm-hmm. hard things that happen. But I'll bet a lot of our listeners, or probably some of our listeners' mothers, remember Ramesh Bhatt. I mean, he was here forever. He was mm-hmm. an institution yeah. in his own right. Touched I don't know hundreds of thousands of lives probably yeah. in one way or another. Certainly touched mine and yours. Yes. But uh, but but he was a great man. Yeah, yeah. So he convinced you to move to the big city of Fort Wayne. Yeah, and I had never heard of Fort Wayne. <laughs> and so when I came over here to, for a visit, I was like, wow, what a great place. Mm. What a great city. 
Dayton was about a million people. Fort Wayne, I think, is 250,000, but it's about yeah. the same feel. Yeah. And I just fell in love with it right away. So you joined a practice called Northeast OBGYN at the time, right? Right. Um, and that was an independent practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, this kind of segues into how you and I met. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, listeners might fast forward if they don't find this part interesting, but um, back in the day, you may not even remember this. I was working for an EMR company. I remember. And I think it was in a meeting in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I was, as they say, a booth babe. You know, I stood in the booth at the conference and I talked about this electronic medical record product. And I met you and I think Dr. Bott was there too. Yep, he was. And I think maybe the three of us shared a beverage perhaps Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up getting to be kind of friends. And then that was the end of that. The conference is over. We went our separate ways. I lived in South Georgia at the time. And then I get recruited to the big city of Fort Wayne from Southwest Georgia, Albany, Georgia. And I'm sitting in what would later be my boss's waiting room uh, to interview for this job. And you walk out of that office and you see me and you turn around and you say to her, if you don't hire him, I'm quitting. (laughs) And uh, I don't know what influence that had, but I got the job and got recruited to Fort Wayne. And that was in 2006. That's how I ended up in Fort Wayne. Yeah. Uh, That was, you know, eons ago in a galaxy far, far away. But that's how we came to know each other. Yeah, and as your listeners, I know, I, I'm sure you have this gentle, <laughs> kind, fun, uh, humorous presence, and I, and that's what I remember when I first met you. I was like, this guy is awesome. He's wow. just just a cool guy. Well, you played another big part in my life that listeners will probably think is funny, and that is you and I were mountain bike riding together once, and I said, you know, my family's not here, but they're coming, and we're looking for a church, and you said, what kind? And I said, big and just polluted with kids. And you said, I got a place for you. And you sent me to St. Vincent de Paul Church. But all you said was, it's called St. Vincent's, and it's big, and it's full of kids. So I went. At the time, I was Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. And I'd been an Episcopalian for about a decade. And so I went to this church, and I thought, it is big. And there are kids everywhere. And I remember telling my wife on the phone, these are some of the nicest Episcopalians I've ever met. (laughs) And uh, I didn't realize that I'd visited a Catholic church. And so a year later, I entered the Catholic church along with my grandmother and my wife. Uh, But I would have never done that had it not been for a bike ride and a nudge to you. So, you know, listeners, you may be evangelizing when you're in the woods riding a bike. You don't even realize it. Uh, But that's what happened. Yeah. That is so cool. And, and some more background of that story is is that when I came here after both my parents had passed, I was in a pretty dark place mm. as far as how I felt toward God because yeah. I felt like I had been this good guy, I thought, you know, and it, and and how could this happen? How could God take my mom and my dad away, but especially yeah. my mom, you know? And I was angry at the doctors. Actually, my dad was misdiagnosed also because – I felt, you know, some my ego was there too. And like, how could they do this, blow my mom off and blow my yeah. dad off? You know, we're, we're doctors. They should have at least called me or something. Yeah. And so I came here and when, when I got here, I was just, I was angry at God. You know, mm-hmm. I was really angry at God. And so there, um, there was this men's group 
that um, at St. Vincent's called Christ Renews His Parish. Sure. And so I was uh, actually, I was uh, rounding one day in the hospital and this guy who's a physician by the name of Sean Brennan who goes there and just said, hey, my name's Sean, I'm Jeff. And he said, hey, there's a, there's a, there's a, a upcoming men's weekend. It's a great way to meet people. Uh meet some good guys in Fort Wayne. I'm like, oh, that's good, because I don't have friends. <laughs> I go, yeah, sign me up. You know, I didn't. I had no idea what was gonna happen. Yeah. And so I went on the Chrysler News weekend, and I was still pretty angry, though. I mean, mm. I wanted to meet people, and on the outside, you smile, and you know, sure. but I was, inside, I was really hurting. And I remember going to Father John at the time, who has now been promoted. Yeah. And, and, we, and part of the Chrysler News weekend is, you go to confession on the on the second night, I think. Yeah. And I had been to confession in a while, and I was pretty angry. And mm-hmm. I walked in there to Father John, and, and I might start crying a little bit right now. This is a powerful <laughs> moment. But it's a huge moment in my life. Yeah. And I, he goes, you know, tell me your sins. I go, I'm not here for confession, Father. He goes, what are you here for? And he, I go, I'm angry at God <laughs> because God took my mom and my dad from uh, me. Sure. And he looked at me, and I, as a doctor, we have answers. We have we have things we get prepared for to questions in our head. And I had all these answers. I was going to debate uh, Father John. Oh yeah. On why I can be angry at I'll God. I'll show you. Yeah. And he goes, "You can't be angry at God." I'm like, "Wait a second. Like, wait. You, what do you mean I can't be? That wasn't <laughs> something I had thought of." He said, "God is pure love, mm. and you can't be angry at pure love." And then he went further. He said, and it's selfish for you to want your mom to be here and oh, not with God. Wow. And that moment was when just all of that anger and sadness left, oh. literally left. It was like. That's the magic of the sacrament. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and thank you, Jesus, for that moment yeah. because that changed my life. Wow. It was gone. And then from there, I was like, wow, hmm. I see it now. So you're an OBGYN in Fort Wayne. And um, this is early in your career, you know, a, a few years ago. You've been at this almost 20 years, right? No, more. Yeah, 23 now yeah. after residency. So um, t- tell us a little bit about how your approach to women's health and gynecology and obstetrics sort of has, has formed and maybe has changed through the years. I think that going through what I went through with my parents was big and realizing that doctors make mistakes mm. and and that I also being someone who was a mama's boy and loved his mom and I respect women that I wanted to also take care of the whole woman mm. not just let's just look at your problem today but let's take care of everything anything you want to and then establish a relationship mm. and so for me that was that was the part of it like to treat women how I would want to be treated if I was in a doctor's office mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of how it evolved is that um, I, when they come in, I still do to this day. How are you doing? How's your family doing? How are the kids? What's going on in your life? And, and we talk about the medical stuff too, but developing that rapport and then continuing that for years and years is, is such a gift and a blessing, mm. but something that's important to me when I practice. I don't like to see the most amount of patients that I can see in a day. Sure. Because I want to sit down and talk with them, and if we need to cry together, we need to laugh together to to have that time. Do you feel like that negative experience with your mother's medical care played a part in sort of shaping that uh, that approach? Absolutely, yeah. It, because I've had people come into me and and they say, Doctor Kyle, I know you. This isn't your area, but but I know you'll guide me mm. to the right person. 
And I think that's how that's yeah. helped me to say, okay, because if, if a doctor isn't figuring something out or they need some answers, I want to help them find those answers yeah. because I don't want what happened to me and my family to happen to someone else from just blowing off a symptom. Yeah. I think those stories, and we all hear them, uh, are some of the most disturbing. It's that, you know, I had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. I couldn't get anybody to listen. Right. Or I had this pain, and I, I couldn't seem to get anybody to take me seriously. Those are the worst stories, I think, right. we hear. Yeah, right. Because it, it represents a opportunity lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and time is the enemy, and it represents time lost. That's so frustrating. And, and somewhat maybe a, a, a mistrust because mm-hmm. the patients trust us with them. Their, I mean, their lives, their families. And yeah. when I feel like if we don't give them that even a few minutes or even say, I don't to say, I don't know the answer. Sure. We take it. It's like we're taking advantage of that trust. And that's yeah. not fair. So changing gears a little, you were an early, early adopter of robotic surgery, which mm-hmm. now is very commonplace, yeah. uh, but it wasn't uh, in right. 2006 and, you know, probably around 2003, 2004. 2005 when I started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you were early on in that curve, and, and it wasn't always well received, right? Right. Tell us about kind of your robotic journey. I've always been someone who is a fire starter, I like new ideas. I think I've heard a, a wise doctor named Dr. Stroud said I was a force. And I was like, <laughs> I'm a force, what do you mean? And so when I was in residency in Ohio, in the old days, they used to take yeah. you and do some training and they'd feed you lunch or feed you dinner. So oh, I went sure. down to Cincinnati, uh, it's an Ethicon Endo at Johnson & Johnson Company and mm-hmm. they taught us about a, uh, um, a laparoscopic harmonic scalpel. Yeah. This is before the robot. I remember. And as we're walking out of the of the place, the one of the first two robots, D- Da Vinci robots in the world, was on demo there. Wow. So as they're trying to build some business, they they say, "Would you like to sit down on this <laughs> cardiac surgery robotic futuristic machine?" Sure that you'll probably never use because you're a gynecologist, <laughs> but um, they're gonna do heart surgery with yeah. this thing. And I sat down on it, and as you know, it's like, it's virtual reality, it's like yeah. playing a video game, it was amazing. Right. And I was like, wow, that's so cool, I'll never be able to use it. And so fast forward a couple years later, 2005 maybe, uh, Parkview ended up buying one for the cardiothoracic surgeons. Yeah, I'd forgotten that robotics really was born in cardiac surgery, yeah. I forgot that completely. And so they had they had this million five one point two million dollar robot, and the cardiac surgeons at the time hated it. <laughs> so they did a couple cases, and yeah. then they put it in a closet. And and so at some point after that happened, I'm walking around doing my surgeries, and I find out this thing that I, I thought was so amazing is in the closet collecting dust. <laughs> and I knew about the cost, and I knew the hospital paid money, and they're still paying money on it. Sure, but it's in the closet. So I went to the leadership and I said, hey, I, I think I could do Let's some. blow the dust off. Huh? Yeah. And, and it was actually me and probably around 50 to 100 of us around the nation. Yeah. This was happening everywhere because mm. all the heart surgeons right. didn't like it at first. So th- that's who we were the early adopters. We yeah. were just we found this great tool that was uh, losing money. And so the hospital said, yeah. yeah, if you can do a hysterectomy or you can do a laparoscopy, right. go at it. But but I was there years later with you, and 
it was a fight right. you know mm-hmm. i mean now it's commonplace but in those early days there was really a lot of obstruction mm-hmm. to wanting to do minimally minimally invasive right. hysterectomy and i remember these discussions about you know tiny little incisions and the patient's going to go home the same day and back to work in a fraction of the time that she was before and we were just greeted with a lot of eye rolling right really not much else right um it's pretty interesting and then i think it was probably around that time 2000 between 2006 and 2010 that urology caught on with robotics right Mm -hmm. and it really became mainstream all of a sudden yeah that was a big part of it and i'm smiling a little because we've had these conversations and and part of being that you know doing what's right for women was part of our journey on why we did the robotics and back in the day, um, it, a lot of women had an open hysterectomy. Sure. Uh, like a, a C- big incision. Big yeah. incision. Yeah. And so that open hysterectomy, as you, as you remember, the listeners may not realize this, typically would, could take 30 minutes. Right. And, you, and the cost or the reimbursement to the doctor was about $2,000 roughly, mm. give or take. Well, a robotic surgery took about two hours when you add in everything. In the early days, we were much, much slower on the robot too. Absolutely. Yeah. And the cost to get reimbursed is a little less than 2000 Right. So we've had, you and I both have had uh, colleagues in the surgery lounge say, yeah. I can do three hysterectomies and make three times as much money right. by the time you do one. And, mo- and at six weeks afterwards, our patients are exactly the same. Yeah. And you're, you have, you're very good at it. And I really, are, you've said things over the years, and I always love how you say them. <laughs> And, and when I hear that, I'm like, wait a second. But you, you're able to verbalize your thoughts. And mm. you said you're discounting the fact that she has a large incision, she has a lot of pain, and she can't drive for two weeks. And mm. that's not fair for you to say that to her. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when did we decide that speed was the marker of quality? Right. 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 I mean, that's a common thing. Yes, I can go faster. Yeah, but I'm not so sure faster was what we were looking for. Right. Now, ironically, I think today, uh, I, I would say we can do a robotic hysterectomy faster than anyone could do an open. Absolutely. Uh, but we're not holding up speed as the quality marker. But uh, but it's commonplace now. But those early days were, were kind of ugly. And then the technology really took hold. Mm-hmm. Urology became for prostatectomies really the gold mm-hmm. standard. Cardiac surgery got reinterested yep. maybe as they had some younger surgeons coming through. Right, exactly. And, and general surgery, colorectal surgery, ENT even – you know, it's the robotic technology is spread. Now there's robots, assisted surgery and orthopedics, and mm-hmm. you know, it's just taken off. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a little bumpy at the beginning. It was, and for three years, I, not, I don't think anyone else did it in town. This is back 2005, 2008, and, uh, but patients wanted this robotic surgery thing. Yeah. So when patients started coming to me, or Indianapolis did it, I think South Bend did it, and the doctors in town were losing their bit, the patients. Yeah they all of a sudden a couple of the other very well-known doctors in town started let's look into this let's train and it felt then the domino effect happened everybody trained and the patients benefited from that i mean i find myself explaining to patients commonly that i do stuff every day in the operating room today with a da vinci robot that it's not as though i couldn't have done it in the old-fashioned open way we didn't even think about doing it right. because it wasn't doable. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you dream up something when it's not doable? Yeah. You know, and now it's commonplace. The things mm-hmm. that we can see and the things that we can do, 
we take it for granted because it just wasn't that many years ago that it was unheard of. Right. Um, so it's really been a game changer for mm-hmm. minimally invasive surgery. In my everyday world, it's really about excising, cutting out endometriosis, mm-hmm. and, a, and then repairing the pelvis and the, and the reproductive tissues in a way that, that's had minimal impact, right. minimal disturbance, no scarring, right. no adhesions. That's been a game changer. Right. Um, that's really been exciting to see over the last few years. Well, I think that's one of the things that draws us together is we both, we both will, will go that extra mile, even though it's a little more challenging, we have to learn a little more skill because it, it's the benefit of the patient mm. versus just going in there and burning off a few lesions and, and then beating our chest and saying, we, <laughs> we fixed it, knowing that th- those people really didn't do the complete job. They yeah. just did a Band-Aid effect. And, sure. And that's for you and I, that, that's one of the things I think we pride ourselves on is that we really try to, to do what we need to do for the patient's mm. benefit, even if we have to learn a new skill or it takes us a little longer, because ultimately it's mm. the right thing. Let's move in a little bit of a different direction. So um, I think um, most all of our listeners realize that at the Fertility Midwifery Care Center, we practice in a pretty unique way. Um, we, we practice in a way that's uh, that's ethically and morally sound, that's evidence-based, that's good science, good health. Um, and, and when I say that, I mean we don't prescribe artificial contraception for anything. We don't tie women's tubes. Uh, we don't refer for abortion. We don't refer for in vitro fertilization and, and the like. Um, and so it, it was a tough journey for me to get to that point. It didn't happen early in my career. Mm-hmm. It happened late in my career. Uh, way back in 2012, you know, the land before time. Um, but it was a tough journey, and it took me a while to get there. You joining FMCC represents a journey, uh, a, a similar journey for you. So help listeners understand, how did you decide to go from being uh, what you might say a regular OBGYN mm-hmm. to, uh, to the way that we practice? So that, uh, great question, and, and I've been denying my Catholic faith on this front for many years. <laughs> so when I had that conversion back with Christ for News in 2003 and four, yeah. I, I really elevated my Catholic knowledge, my faith, was a part of a men's group called Rekindle the Fire, yeah. but I kept prescribing birth control. And so through the years, that's been kind of a spot in my heart where I felt like, and I've tried to use my ego and defend mm. myself, but that was wrong of saying, well, I'm trying to prevent unwanted pregnancies and yeah. prevent suffering. Well, but in fairness, you were yeah. a, you were pretty famous in the Fort Wayne area pro-life work early on when abortions were happening here every day. Yeah. Uh, you did some really early amazing yeoman's work at trying to reduce the number of abortions. Uh, and and I, I didn't do anything nearly as impressive as you did, but I, I did some of that as well, and I was still prescribing. But I think I had a wall, yeah. you know, that I just yeah. – I, I, I segmented that away and didn't think that applied. So, um, and and yeah. I think a lot of people that would call themselves staunchly pro-life without exception probably have never made the connection between artificial contraception and abortion. Um, and once they make that connection, it's like a light going off, and, and that's what happens. You know, they feel convicted and mm-hmm. want to make a change. Uh, the, and that's a great way to say it. Uh, the the light going off is so true, and yeah. the, having that wall of <laughs> of ego and pride and defense yeah. mechanism. 
And so just over these last years and in, in the journey I've had recently walking with God and mm-hmm. surrendering is in, in working, talking to you. And I'm like, yeah, okay, God, I get it. It's time. <laughs> and he's been asking me for a long time. And finally, I just, I've just surrendered it all. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes so much sense. And yeah. the, the, light goes, the light goes off. I'm like, oh, my gosh, Lord, I'm so sorry that I, <laughs> I denied you, you know, all yeah. these years. Because w- birth, artificial birth control is it's not that effective. <laughs> I mean, it's birth control pills have a massive failure rate. Yeah, look on the CDC website. It's right there. Right. And, and uh, the NAPRO, uh, natural family planning, yeah. when it's followed, has a, a better success rate. Mm. And then also, what does that do that improves the relationship between mm. the man and the woman? Sure. Right? And the, the artificial contraception, the 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 meism uh, i want to do what i want when uh, i want it when I no want consequence it. exactly <laughs> it just pushes or furthers yeah. us farther and farther away from god so it's all there's this relationship that mm. unless you're really looking at that with through god with god's plan you don't see how the the darkness is mixing yeah. in there it's but, interesting i often tell people they'll ask me you know in good faith Maybe a little, maybe a little negative, but they'll say, "Well, how did you get to this point? You know, how did you get here?" And I like to say, "You know, I could get you where I am with theology or with biology. We'll end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. We could get there in different routes. We could talk about the risk of breast cancer with birth control pills, or mm-hmm. or all of the other problems and insults to a woman's health by using artificial synthetic hormones." Or we could talk about church teaching and the theology, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly theology of the body, even St. Pope Paul VI. We'll end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. And then some people like both roads mm-hmm. uh, and jumping back and forth. But, but once you start down that road, there's no really turning back, is there? No turning back. And, <laughs> and it, it's ultimately going thinking about are you giving it up to God from the beginning? Yeah. Like are you saying, okay, God, in our marriage – we want to put you first and your will first, or or are we saying, well, God, we're going to just go to Sunday Mass, but we're going to do our own thing for a while. <laughs> so it ultimately comes back to just yeah. surrendering, which then brings so much rich richness and fruits. And, yeah. um, and, and I like to point out that I think is important, you know, many, many women are taking artificial hormones for a problem that has nothing to do with contraception. You know, every day I'll see young high school age women or younger who are struggling with problems with their periods and intractable pain and all sorts of things. And their mothers will bring them to us because they think of it as a safe referral Mm -hmm. because they know we're not going to put them on the pill. And not even so much that maybe they're opposed to, to contraception, but they're opposed to not finding out what's wrong. Yeah. So it it is not normal for a young woman to miss school and to miss soccer practice right. and to not be able to function four or five days a month because she's in intractable pain. Right. There's right. there's no universe in which that's normal. Right. So our job as physicians is to find the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, for generations, for eons, physicians have used symptoms to point to disease. Mm-hmm. And then we treat the disease and we watch the symptoms go away. Right as a way to know that we've been successful in treating the disease. Mm-hmm. That's how contemporary medicine is practiced outside of gynecology. It's true. Um, it's so true. But we're doing our best to change that, but it's uh, it's sort of one life at a time. Yeah, and, I, and it's interesting. I've said to patients for 20 years is that I don't like putting you on hormones 
for this problem or that problem because of the what it does to your body it takes away your natural Mm. emotions it can cause challenges libido changes sure and then it creates other issues so for me i was already just i was just not allowing the god part there (laughs) but i've always been someone who doesn't want to put people on artificial hormones so now i feel like it's just god's letting me complete that picture and follow his will and and you're right, doing, you know, putting a young girl on a birth control pill for three months, which is the standard. Sure. And if her pain is fine or enough, then keep her on that. Yeah. Instead of going in and diagnosing and treating a the real problem. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's been a fascinating journey like that. So now you're new again to Fort mm-hmm. Wayne. You've been away for several years. You left Parkview, I think, in what, about 2019? Yeah. And so tell us what's been happening, and now you're back. So I, I, I left um, to, in, in, in the end, I, I went to Rochester, Indiana, and started their robotic surgery program, sure. as well as did OBGYN work yeah. there. And that contract was about a three-year contract. Yeah. And so that's kind of, that contract is done. So um, We now, get you back. Yeah. And, and when I... <laughs> Was thinking, okay, now what I'm going to do? I I want. I've always lived here in Fort Wayne. We yeah. just we lived a little closer to Rochester, mm-hmm. um, Southwest, and so that's where uh, I was like, you know what? I want to talk to Dr. Stroud because <laughs> you always know the lay of the land. Uh, and you and I said I wanted to come back and I wanted to see what was going on with other groups in yeah. town. And you said, why don't you just join me? And I was like, this was this is God. <laughs> this is God right now putting us together. We're so you're coming back. You're starting in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, listeners will be listening to this probably in, in July, maybe August. Um, but we've skipped another area that I think you've had a huge influence in women's health, uh, especially in my own career, and that is the pain and suffering of recurrent pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. So you got interested in that problem early on. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How did you get so interested, and kind of what did you learn along the way of that interest? It might, the passion and the fire that I have to help women prevent m- recurrent miscarriages or even their first miscarriage, yeah. probably there's some correlation with the suffering of my parents dying and just uh-huh. the, the, how horrible that is because that, that they're suffering so much when losing a, a baby um, yeah. early or late in pregnancy. Um, and so the really the big moment was here in town where there was a young woman who was pregnant and didn't seem to have obvious risk factors and ended up coming in around 37 weeks so just a few weeks before the baby should be born yeah. and the baby was dead it yeah. was a, it was uh, an a stillbirth in, yeah yeah intrauterine fetal demise and stillbirth and that well, I mean, was horrible for her and her family but for me as the doctor who was like, what what just happened here? How could God let this happen? Yeah. If a million things got to go right to have a normal, healthy child, and that happens all the time, something happened in that process because it's God's process that we need to figure out how we can fix that or yeah. how we can identify that. And so as I'm looking into that with the current guidelines back in 2003, 2004, there wasn't much in the standard guidelines. They were like, well, if a woman miscarries once, chalk it up to chance. Yeah. Twice, yeah, it's probably chance. Three, after the third time, then you can do some lab work yeah. and evaluate it. And I was like, wait a second. And it sounds antiquated, but that's what women hear today. 
every day mm -hmm. uh, in OBGYN offices across the world, I suppose, yeah. certainly across America. You know, if you have three losses, we should probably we should probably ask some questions. And whenever I hear a patient say that, it's usually through tears. But, you know, my response is, can you imagine for a moment if you said to your pediatrician as you're leaving a well child visit, oh, by the way, a couple of my toddlers died. And the pediatrician says, well, if any more of them die, we should probably look into it. Oh, wow. No woman would tolerate that. Nope. Yet that's what women are told every day mm -hmm. uh, when they have miscarriages. So it is maddening. Yeah, uh -huh. It really is. And I've gotten in a lot of, I've gotten some heat over the years <laughs> because I've, I've searched out some of the information. Yeah. I didn't develop it, but as we look for information on how to prevent recurrent miscarriages. Or at least reduce the chance, right? Mm -hmm, it's yeah. out there. And it's interesting, the worldwide literature is all over this. Yeah. The American literature doesn't have that much currently they're putting out to how to prevent recurrent miscarriages. So what I tell my patients, and I, I know you do too, is this is the data that we've found. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't come up with it. It's sure. international data. And these are some of the ways that these few small things, whether mm. it's uh, vitamins, herbs, Baby um, aspirin. Baby aspirin. Simple thing sometimes. Yeah. Um, or watching your baby closer during the pregnancy, doing more yeah. ultrasounds. We can we can have a better job at making sure your baby delivers as a healthy baby. And yeah. that's something that uh, I know you were passionate about. I'm passionate about to tr because that's what we do. We, we help babies make it to term so that they can be born safely and healthily. And that's you would child. think there wouldn't be a resistance to that. Right. Uh, right. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Right. But I know both of us every day hear those stories where women are saying, I had loss after loss mm -hmm. after loss, and I just couldn't get anybody to take my losses seriously. So we call recurrent pregnancy loss one miscarriage. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we think of it as preventing recurrent miscarriage. Uh, and one is one too many. Um, and, and I probably, you probably also do this. I mean, we look for risk factors. Yeah. When a woman's pregnant the first time saying, you know, is this in your family? Are these other issues sure. in your family? And if they are, let's look for that risk today. Before you have a loss. Before you have a loss. Yeah. And sometimes I used to take heat for that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's come along where people say, oh, well, you found these factors because you looked. Yeah. So now the, the, it's more customary. But I, that's wonderful, and we can prevent it all yeah. altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I can't wait to have you part of our practice at Fertility Midwifery Care Center. It's going to be uh, great to have you back again as a practice partner after a few years away. Yeah. Uh, and I know the community is excited to have you thank back you. as well. Uh, I'm so excited. I feel blessed. And thank you for letting me come back and join your amazing team. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, conversation with Dr. Jeff Clyde as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. I hope you've learned some things, whether it's about recurrent miscarriage and pregnancy loss or endometriosis or maybe the history of robotic surgery. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Dr. Clyde, you can find out on our website. Uh, that's fertilityandmidwifery.com. Uh, you can contact our office at 260-222-7401 and ask about a consultation appointment 
uh, with Dr. Clive. Are there other things you'd like to know about? Are there questions uh, that you'd like to ask me or Dr. Clive or any of our other guests? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can contact us uh, at the Fertility Midwifery Care Center. We'd love to hear your questions and we'd love to have ideas for future topics. So I hope you'll join me again uh, on a future episode of All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud.